Welcome to The Definitive Rap, where we report the truth about American exceptionalism. We love our flag, we love our country, and we believe in America. The Definitive Rap, where we respect people of faith, the men and women in blue, and our support for Israel. And now your hosts, Bela Sebro. She's the nice one. And Alan Skorsky. Uh, he's not so nice. But together they are the definitive rap. I'm Alan Skorsky with my co-host Bela Sebrow, and welcome to the Definitive Rap Podcast. As always, we want to thank VinNews.com for hosting our shows. During the last several years, FBI data has shown a massive spike of anti-Semitic attacks against Jews and Jewish institutions, and that Jews have been the most targeted group in America. We are no longer just victimized by Holocaust-denying neo-Nazis, but now are targeted by the far left, radical Islamists, and the Free Palestine PLO movement, who have spent years trying to delegitimize Israel in the media, on college campuses, academia, and now the halls of Congress. Last month in Texas, Gina Petty, Executive Director of Curriculum and Instruction for the Carroll Independent School District, said, We are in the middle of a political mess. Make sure if you have a book on the Holocaust that you have one that has opposing or other perspectives. In 2019, Florida principal William Latson said that he had to be politically neutral about the Holocaust because not all our parents have the same beliefs. He was suspended and now has been reinstated. In 2018, Trayon White Sr., a Washington, D.C. councilman who is now running for mayor, suggested on Facebook that rich Jews control the weather. He later visited the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum and left way halfway through the 90-minute tour, according to media reports. Today's very special guest, whom Bela will introduce shortly, is Rabbi Abraham Cooper from the Simon Wiesenthal Center to discuss these very troubling events and if we in the Jewish community and other men and women of goodwill are going to wake up and realize that the threats against us are coming from more corners of society than we want to admit. Bela? As Holocaust survivor and Nazi hunter Simon Wiesenthal said, the history of man is the history of crime. And George Orwell, the English journalist, has coined the quote, however much you deny the truth, the truth goes on existing. We have seen throughout history that those who deny the truth do not change the facts of what has happened. What happened has happened, and it becomes the reality, and it will not go away. One major case in point and the topic today on our show is the denial of the Holocaust. Deniers of the Holocaust, the systemic murder of more than 6 million Jews, completely deny that such a genocide took place, or they minimize this atrocity by saying that the millions of lives were inadvertently lost, circumstances of war. Yes, this is what's going on around the world. And what makes it worse in the United States is we have what is called the First Amendment, freedom of speech. Interestingly, there are countries that have laws making it a crime to deny the Holocaust. But the United States' Constitution's First Amendment is all about freedom of expression. Say whatever you want. Teach whatever you want. And that's just the way it is. And this has become a cultural phenomenon in the United States. Started in the late 1970s. 
and it picked up major speed in the early 1990s when student Holocaust deniers published ads denying the Holocaust in college newspapers. Colleges such as University of Michigan, Ohio State University, and Brandeis University. And they defended their actions, claiming it was their right to do so. Northwestern University allowed electrical engineering professor Arthur Butts to continue teaching even though he denied the Holocaust. These are just short examples of what is going on. So why are we surprised about Gina Petty in Texas or the Florida principal William Latson saying that not all parents have the same belief about the Holocaust? Or, or, or Trey and White Sr. running for mayor in Washington, D.C., claiming that Jews control the weather and showing no interest in the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum? Why are we surprised? Holocaust denial has become part of the culture. Thank God we have the Simon Wiesenthal Center. And we will hear from Rabbi Abraham Cooper, who's Associate Dean and Director of Global Social Action for the Simon Wiesenthal Center a leading Jewish human rights organization with more than 400,000 family members. Together with Rabbi Heyer, Rabbi Cooper regularly meets with world leaders, including Pope Francis, presidents, and foreign ministers to defend the rights of the Jewish people, to combat terrorism, and promote multi-faith relations worldwide. Rabbi Cooper is an acknowledged expert on online hate and terrorism. His op-eds appear in major U.S. and Israeli outlets in Asia and in the Arab News and Al Arabiya. Newsweek Daily Beast lists Rabbi Cooper and Rabbi Heyer as number eight amongst the 50 most influential rabbis in the U.S. Rabbi Cooper, it gives me tremendous honor and joy to welcome you to our show. Rabbi Cooper, for those who don't know what the Simon Wiesenthal Center is all about, and what you do with regard to Holocaust research and remembrance, hunting Nazis was war criminals, combating anti-Semitism, tolerance education, defending Israel, its own museum tolerance. This is your opportunity to educate our listeners. Please tell us about its inception and what brought about the creation of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Okay, thank you for the opportunity. And um... It's a pleasure to be on the program and to communicate uh, to your audience. Um, Our institution is named at this point in memory and originally in honor of a great uh, Jew and a great humanitarian, a a great hero of the 20th century, Simon Wiesenthal, a blessed memory. Uh, Mr. Wiesenthal was among the millions of Jews in Europe uh, who were caught up in the Shoah, in the Nazi Holocaust. By the time that U.S. soldiers uh, freed him uh, from Mauthausen concentration camp in Austria in May 1945, uh, he weighed about 90 pounds. Another week he would have been dead, uh, would have starved to death. He wasn't uh, even strong enough to stand up and hug the American soldiers who had just saved him. And he would soon find out that together with his wife, who was hidden Uh, during the war by righteous Christians. They lost 89 members of their family. So first, Mr. Wiesenthal was the victim of the Nazis. But unlike almost everyone else, you might say he never left the Holocaust. He became um, the great Nazi hunter, a person whose uh, commitment 
was to rehabilitate the very concept of justice in the world that the Nazis had almost succeeded in obliterating and uh, succeeded in bringing, helping to bring 1,100 Nazi war criminals before the bar of justice after World War II during a time of the Cold War. I'm old enough to remember the Cold War. Many young people have no idea what it was. But from 1945 on, the former allies, the U.S., uh, Russia, the U.S., uh, who got together to finally defeat Hitler, uh, sort of with a vine for the power in the world. And during that whole era, uh, former Nazis became uh, potential spies, uh, potential scientists. Nobody was interested in uh, justice for the victims of the Holocaust. Two out of every three Jews in Europe had been murdered by the uh, Nazi Third Reich and their uh, collaborators in all the European countries they touched. Um, and he was one of a handful of people who said, uh, I'm not going to let this go. And of course, his most famous case that he was involved with over the years, which eventually, thank God, the Israelis uh, were able to capture uh, Eichmann, the architect of the final solution, put him on trial. And uh, I think the only person ever executed under is Israeli law. So Mr. Wiesenthal set up shop in Vienna, in Austria, which is uh, the, the, really the core of where the whole Nazi ideology sprouted up. And um, uh, he really faced the potential of violence or worse every day. Everyone knew who he was. And there were still plenty of former SS, some of them in government, former Nazis, but he, he drew the line. Uh, he, he fought the, the fights in, uh, uh, in, in the various trials. And he did so without any formal training. He was an architect before World War II. And he became a symbol to the Jewish people and not only of someone who stood up for justice and would fight against uh, genocide. That's the person that Rabbi Marvin Heyer went to see back in 1977 and said, I came here to Vienna to take your most precious um, and, and valued uh, uh, possession, your good name. And Mr. Wiesenthal basically said, if you're going to build a place where people will say Kaddish twice a year, beautiful idea. You tell me about the museum. Terrific. I'll give you a letter. If you want my name, I'm an activist. So I know you're going to help me until the end when it comes to Nazi war criminals. And as we speak, probably the last trial of a Nazi uh, associated with, uh, with the Shoah, a, a 96-year-old, 97-year-old former secretary in the Stutthof concentration camp, probably the last trial ever. Um, that's taking place because of the commitment of, of one man. And uh, from that, we... Uh, Rabbi Heyer, myself, and our fantastic team been able to forge a teaching institution, but not a traditional one. It means we have a museum in Los Angeles, the Museum of Tolerance, seven and a half million visitors. We're building an even larger museum in Jerusalem. Uh, our Mariah Films Division has won two Academy Awards. We have traveling exhibitions around the world. Uh, I travel a great deal, and one of the things that he said throughout was, the Jewish people can't do this alone. We need friends. We need allies. 
We need engagement. And that's also an important part, I think, of our discussion today. Uh, you've identified uh, many of the problems that we deal with day in and day out. And uh, hopefully we'll spend a little bit of time about some strategies that we need to, to employ and some strategies that have been employed uh, that are showing, um, I think, um, some positive signs in a very difficult setting. In so far as Holocaust denial, um, we also have to understand that this is not just a matter uh, initially of uh, neo-Nazis or of old Nazis who said the only thing that went wrong was the wrong side one, and they were very proud of what happened. So you have actually two types of Holocaust deniers, primarily. One is someone like the Ayatollah Khomeini, the head of Iran, a, a government which has the full power of the state behind the push for the denial of the Shoah. So he's in the camp that I would say is deny the Holocaust to place and do everything you can to finish the job. Now, that may sound completely bizarre to us because they're polar opposites, but that's exactly, you, know, you have a whole uh, uh, arena in which um, the Shoah is minimized or denied. Along the way, uh, you say, by the way, the real Nazis are today's Israelis, and whatever it is that happened to the Jews in the 20th century, now the Jews are doing it to the Palestinians in the 21st century. So that might sound a little bit, you know, maybe someone needing psychiatric help, and maybe they do. But when you're the head of a state and others, when you have, uh, you know, access to communication, uh, that's a very, very um, sort of powerful drug. You mentioned before Butts, the associate professor from Northwestern, and he was on CNN, I believe, a quarter of a century ago. I always remembered this particular um, interview, and they gave him an opportunity to spout his uh, denial of the Shoah. The, the host of the program got so exasperated because they were actually showing footage of the Holocaust over his voice. And when they came back, and he said, well, we just showed you the evidence. How could you deny that Auschwitz that took place? Right. And I think probably he said his most honest comment ever. I, um, I don't believe that Auschwitz took place because I'm more comfortable not believing that it took place. So when we talk about the Shoah as Jews, uh, we, of course, are mourning our families. And uh, as Mr. Wiesenthal and the, the late great wordsmith and Nobel Prize winner, Elie Wiesel, uh, they were the people among the very few survivors at that point in history who did speak out and tried to inspire Jews and non-Jews to learn the lessons of what had transpired during the Second World War. Because we all know what begins with the Jews never ends with the Jews. So for many decades, these, these individuals were lonely voices. Simon Wiesenthal almost had to close his office in Vienna twice for lack of any funding. Uh, Elie Wiesel, for a long time, couldn't even write about what took place. We're uh, many decades later, we have Holocaust uh, museums, 
memorials, uh, films, et cetera, et cetera. So we're now further down the road, but we are confronted with the reality that um, Holocaust denial, deflection of, of what uh, uh, took place, the co-opting of Holocaust symbols uh, in important social debates, for example, over the vaccines, et cetera, et cetera. It is become a, a part. Now, you mentioned uh, specifically uh, two cases that actually came back to public, um, uh, the, the public within a few days of each other. Number one was the reinstatement of the principal in uh, of Palm Beach, Florida. And number two was the statement of uh, uh, an educator to teachers saying, you know, remember now if you're going to be, when you teach about the Holocaust, if it's been mandated, then make sure that you have access to other opinions. Um, I think in, in, uh, in the case of the principal, this man should uh, not be anywhere near a classroom or a drafting of a curriculum. Uh, and yet he was reinstated four to three. I don't know all the details. Maybe it was more about union politics. I'm, I'm not aware. All I know is that uh, the kids in that uh, school are now uh, under the supervision of a person who essentially is saying it's okay to have your own set of facts. I'm not the first person to say it, but here we are on this wonderful podcast. Everything about America is being able to have your own opinion. But once upon a time, you were allowed your own opinion, but you weren't allowed your own set of facts. Right. And when, when you take a look at what happened in Texas, I think in some ways, uh, it's more about what's happening in a, in a broader uh, sense here in, in American society, having maybe not that much to do with the Shoah or even Jews, but it's all about how you feel. And where, where that, you know, where I would take that like um, is to share with you a question that I asked the top three police of the New York uh, Police Department back in 2019, actually early 2020, just before COVID. Mm -hmm. Many of uh, the people listening and watching won't remember, but we do, that even before COVID, 2019, uh, the Jews were the number one targets of violent uh, yeah. uh, hate crimes in our country. I know that 2019 seems like another century or another planet. But when I asked these uh, three top officials, each of whom were for sure easily in their 60s, they said simultaneously social media. What has changed for them as police was the advent of social media, meaning the opportunity for bigots and racists and anti-Semites and Holocaust deniers and conspiracy, conspiracy uh, buffs to have an unprecedented access to the most powerful marketing and communications tool on in the world, still evolving, growing stronger each day, giving the opportunity for these individuals and groups to be able to communicate and target uh, their audiences and victims 24-7. That is the world we live in today. And uh, what's really lacking um, uh, is any real filter. Uh, one could argue, and I've been involved for uh, my first meeting at Facebook was when they had one building. Now they own four zip codes. 
you can argue that, well, wait a second, uh, it should be totally laissez-faire, freedom of speech, uh, everything should be able to uh, go on uh, social media, et cetera, et cetera. Of course, we know that's complete nonsense. Uh, we have issues like pedophilia, like uh, telling people to send you a check or a credit card, and you end up ripping them off. There are all sorts of rules uh, and regulations. And we have been interacting with the social media giants literally for a quarter of a century. I think one of the great tragedies of American life, and it's not a political statement because we don't endorse political candidates, is what happened that over the years, uh, even as we speak, we continue to meet with upper level folks from each of these um, uh, companies, including Facebook, And what we've been basically told was, well, we can't really ever eliminate everything because that's not just possible. Now, what did emerge from last year's wild presidential election was that, in effect, um, I think that the Silicon Valley uh, was lying to itself and landed up lying to, to to the world, meaning when they did get together, They did decide to uh, put their thumb on the scale. Uh, They impacted profoundly, not only on the outcome of of the national election, but even on what it is that we could read or not read. And the decision to take all of those tools and go political rather than apply them to what we used to call the lunatic fringe, people who are obviously bigots who hate uh, uh, the gays, they hate the Jews, blacks, whatever, because it's a full menu out there. It's not just the Jews. Uh, they headed off in the wrong direction. And as a result, if you you know read the Wall Street Journal, every few days is another massive article that shows that at Facebook, and it's probably true with the others, um, people try to do their job, whether it's protecting kids or analyzing the data, They sent it upstairs, and in the end, it was basically, how do we generate more numbers, more revenue, um, and uh, uh, turning turning a deaf ear? So in in putting into context context, the few minutes that we have, um, social media is front and center to all of these discussions. Uh, and its impact, and of course, we're not knocking the technology. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here today, right. you know. And I've got uh, grandchildren in Jerusalem and in Denver, and I live in LA, and et cetera, et cetera. Our world has changed in many ways for the best. But anyone who thinks that the technology, in of itself, uh, is a total blessing, is, uh, is is just not dealing in reality. Yeah. Right. Rabbi Cooper, I had a question. There is a saying from on our side that it didn't start with the gas chambers. It started with words. And I have another saying. It didn't start with the gas chambers. It started with the delegitimizing and dehumanizing of the Jews. That's more specific than saying it started with words. And then I allude to the Free Palestine Movement. There is a reason why they tag Israel as apartheid, genocide, and ethnic cleansing because those words are trigger words. Now, apartheid is already sticking because I see it everywhere, Israeli apartheid. But it's bad enough it's coming from them, but it comes from our side also. You have someone like Peter Beinart, who in his book, The Crisis of Zionism, 
why am I promoting his book? Anyhow, um, he, uh, he wrote in his book that um, uh, we spend too much money on Holocaust museums, not enough time, on, not enough money on Jewish day schools, and we haven't learned the lessons of the Holocaust. Last year, we interviewed Nat Lewin, who had written a scathing letter to Deborah Lipstadt, of all people, who said something to the effect of uh, rejecting the outcome of an election is akin to Holocaust denial. So, I mean, this is something that goes way beyond what we're used to confronting. So I don't know if you have any comments about that, if your um, organization well, is addressed um, or not. You know, it, it, that's a lot of, right, there's, there's a lot of territory there. I think, I remember a Jerusalem Post uh, cartoon, probably Dry Bones, uh, that had uh, two, two sections to it. One was Jews to Palestine, and underneath it said Germany, 1932, protesters, get out and go back. And on the same location, uh, in, in 2010, Jews out of Palestine. So um, uh, we know one thing about anti-Semitism. Uh, uh, it continues to morph, metastasize, but actually what we're, we're dealing with today uh, is that, especially because of social media, but not only, uh, we now have uh, hatred coming from groups and ideologies that are polar opposites, that can't agree on anything except one thing. It's useful uh, you know, to, blame, uh, to blame the Jews. Uh, I would say that one of the realities, especially during COVID, that we've seen and uh, in, in recent months, it's very interesting that uh, the results of the absorption of these big lies and the promotion of them in academia and, uh, and in social media, we see it also playing out in our schools across the country. And um, I've been in touch with many progressive Jewish parents who for the first time in their lives have experienced anti-Semitism have had their kids come home from public school and say they were bullied and called all these terrible words, you know, et cetera, et cetera, from kids who probably didn't even know exactly what they were saying. So uh, I think one of the, the great truths, uh, maybe tragic truths about Jewish history is that to our enemies, it doesn't make a difference whether you're wearing a yarmulke, star of David around your neck, or changed your name uh, you know, and, and uh, don't even publicly show your Jewishness. Eventually, the bigots, the racists, the anti-Semites are going to get around to you. And people, younger people, you know, now younger people beginning to put families together, um, are beginning to respond. Uh, I'll tell you in a moment about what just happened in San Diego. Uh, but one of my heroes and, and great friends, Natan Sharansky, made a phenomenal statement that I, it, in which I kind of refer to almost every day. He said, look, Jewish leaders, uh, it's not our job to tell people how to think or how to vote or whether to be conservative or progressive. That's up to every individual to do what they want. But here's something we can demand, and that is when you have someone in your movement who expresses anti-Semitism, you have an obligation to speak up first. It's easy to hit the other guy. Uh, but if you really want to be effective as a leader and you want to be true to yourself, 
I think that's a very important uh, baseline. Now, uh, recently, the San Diego Teachers Union uh, voted an extraordinarily radical uh, anti-Israel, and uh, many of us would say anti-Semitic, resolution. The same resolution that was voted down here in Los Angeles was voted uh, was voted in favor in the San Diego uh, Teachers Union um, just a few days ago. Uh, a group of uh, Jewish moms, I guess, in San Diego, uh, smart people, maybe a couple of uh, fathers thrown in there, but they were the engine. Uh, they um, uh, demanded time and were given a slot at the school board meeting for San Diego. They came in with a brilliant resolution. They got the backing of, because they asked, of the Wiesenthal Center, of ADL, of the local rabbis, and they made their case before the school board, essentially saying the exact opposite of slapping down this idea that ethnic studies includes the promotion of anti-Semitism, explicit language. They, it was voted through unanimously by the school board. That's the kind of action, activity, and leadership we're going to need. I, I would just say, I've been at, you know, I'm here at the 44th year at the Wiesenthal Center, um, but I think we live now in an era that uh, in order for us to be able to move forward, it's got to be all hands on deck. And in some ways, it's a lot easier these days because uh, we see that the gatekeep, some of the gatekeepers like the Sarsors and the Squad, et cetera, and other, um, they're basically telling uh, American Jews, and you have it on campus also, if you want to belong, if you want to be accepted, you have to park your own uh, values at the door. Well, we all know that that's a prescription for the end of our community here in America, and and God forbid, a much worse. One other point, we'll come back to something that Simon Wiesenthal said, just to give you an idea of how old I am. In 1980, I had the honor of uh, going around the Midwest with him. He spoke at a number of synagogues and campuses. He was asked, could it happen again? It's a horrible question, but a legitimate one. And he said the following, if you have hate, organized hate, plus a crisis, plus technology, anything can happen. He continued that when he talked about technology, he was thinking about the Nazi propaganda in the 1930s. And he said, if you would have had the kind of uh, hate and organized hate and technology uh, back in the time of the Spanish Inquisition. No Jew would have survived in Spain. No Catholic would have survived in England. No Protestant would have survived in France. So his bottom line answer was, yes, it could happen. And that was decades before anyone even conceived of the internet. So I'm not saying we're on the eve of anything. We live in the, um, in the world's greatest country. Our freedoms are precious. But if you come to the Museum of Tolerance, there's another quote from Simon Wiesenthal. 
who said, freedom is not a gift from heaven. It has to be earned every day. It has to be fought for every day. Rabbi Cooper, um, denialism took a turn for the worse when David Irving brought a libel suit against Deborah Lipstadt in uh, 2000. It was on behalf of the Holocaust denial movement. And just uh, recently, rapper Jay Electronica referred to you as a liar and devil. My question is, has the Simon Reason Thought Center had pushback, meaning have there been legal complaints lodged against the organization? Well, first, let me just say that I had the honor to attend one day of that uh, lawsuit in the courtroom in London. Um, at the time, uh, I just kept mumbling to myself, there was a reason for the Boston Tea Party. Uh, as an American, I was so outraged, I wanted to choke the guy. But actually, the judge did the right thing. He let Irving say uh, everything he wanted to for the record. And in England, when you sue uh, for libel, it's much uh, easier to win than in the United States. The onus is really on the author. Not the right, other way around. Right, right, right. Okay? In the in the end, it was British legal system and a British judge who buried uh, Irving, who called him uh, a racist, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, uh, honestly, you know, I, I've been uh, sort of targeted by some of the rap artists going back to the nineties, um, uh, and uh, you know, no, I don't consider legal action. When uh, when someone um, lands up insulting us, as you probably know, I've had a lot to do with a guy named Nick Cannon, uh, who, uh, you know, last year had one of the old rappers on and one of our staff members came in and said, no, you have to watch this podcast. This is in the midst of some of the horrendous statements by basketball players and others and uh, Kareem. Abdul-Jabbar was the one African-American who pushed back within his community in a very powerful way against anti-Semitism. But when I watched this program from uh, Nick Cannon, uh, he had a guy uh, uh, on there who was just basically channeling uh, Farrakhan's hatred from the 1980s right into the mainstream of the African-American community. So I just sent out a tweet saying that if you want to know, you know, everything about hate and anti-Semitism, watch this program. Long story short, uh, we eventually uh, met after he uh, uh, publicly apologized to the, to the American Jewish community. Um, what I found with someone like Nick Cannon, who's an extremely adroit, uh, I think business person, he's very, very successful in his artistic arena. Um, what he lacked was any filter. I think it's one of the biggest problems right across the board uh, in the world we live in today. As you said in your opening, you can say anything, you can do anything uh, in the name of freedom. Um, but the whole idea of seeking truth, there's no librarian online. There's no fact checker online. So whoever is loudest and most controversial or, you know, groupthink, all the rest of those things, this is a huge challenge for us collectively. Go, you know, and you, were, you also alluded to the fact that in other democracies, including Germany, Austria, UK, there are laws against Holocaust denial. But honestly, 
we're never going to legislate hate or anti-Semitism out of existence. And it doesn't mean that there aren't times when you wield the legal, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, legal cudgel, and that Lewin is, is a national treasure of the Jewish people and of the American people. A brilliant uh, lawyer who's uh, Orthodox Jew has been before the Supreme Court numerous times. Yeah, we, we have to engage, uh, you know, on all, on all fronts. Um, but the truth is, uh, in addition to fighting back on the negative, our best uh, weapon uh, are our Jewish values. And pushing that out and explaining to people, um, I remember in Japan when we caught a company that was uh, a major company about to publish the Protocols of Zion. We caught them. They apologized. They brought me over. I gave the speech. And the executive vice president of the company said the following. And I want, if you don't remember anything else from our conversation, remember what he said the following. Rabbi, thank you very much for coming. We appreciate the Wiesenthal Center, what you do. Uh, And thank you, this is a quote, for explaining to us that the Jewish people don't go to synagogue on the Sabbath to plot the economic downfall of Japan. That's a quote. And he went on to summarize the rest of my speech. I said, well, you know, thank you very much. You summarized my one-hour presentation beautifully in two and a half minutes. What's your question? And he said, Rabbi, please tell we have 75 executives here. What do Jews do in synagogue on the Sabbath? And when I heard that comment from this business leader, it really changed my job description. Because here's the point about you go to the, to the courts and do that. It's really not so much, it's not about me or about, it's really if you have the, you have the mic, you have the attention or you want to get the attention or you want to build the coalition. It can never just be on the negative. Okay. The more I travel the world, I've been to Japan close to 40 times, India, Azerbaijan, Indonesia, Nigeria, etc. When you go out, much anti-Semitism, but curiosity. Who are you? Who are you people? Why did Jews in Toronto care about what happens to Jews in Tel Aviv? Could you explain to us, like, how have you managed to stay around for 3,500 years and uh, and 2,000 of those years you had no connection to your own homeland? That's really the biggest challenge of all. And that extends to the suburbs of LA, to the Philadelphia area, is that we're in a new century now. And we have to do it smart, but we better do it. Um, who are the local clergy of other faiths? What are they preaching? Did anybody ever knock on the door to speak to them? You know, we can't assume that our neighbors are going to um, have any sympathy, empathy, or support for our, for our concerns unless we communicate with them. And that's something that's an indictment, I must say, of Jews across the political and religious spectrum is always assuming someone else will do it. Oh, there's a problem with an elected official. APAC will deal with that. But wait a second, it's the city council or it's, we, we have to engage. You know, the, the head of the uh, Black Panthers in the 1960s, 
and people all know who they were. They can look it up afterwards on Google. Said an amazing thing. I was a teenager back then when I heard him say it. He said he, he learned, this is what he learned from the Holocaust. He learned from the Holocaust that it was a sin to be powerless. So unfortunately, in his mind, that meant you picked up a rifle. We live in a democracy. And so uh, the way to be powerless and to become invisible is to do nothing, is to assume the rabbi will do it, the state senator will do it, this guy, that gal, those days are uh, over. And just as we can underestimate the anti-Semitism out there, we shouldn't overestimate it. This is still the greatest country uh, in the world. But if you don't engage, we all know you, even in your introduction, line up. You've got Suris up from here to there. But um, I'm still fundamentally very optimistic, especially because in my lifetime, I went from being someone who's had to avoid the KGB for a month in the Soviet Union to flying from Moscow to Israel to be at the Kotel in, in the morning. I uh, was someone who now goes regularly to the Gulf states and witnessed the signing of peace treaties between Arabs and Jews. So we shouldn't paint uh, a picture that's uh, only doom and gloom. That's, by the way, horrible for our kids. That's not how we transmit our values. But also, uh, it means uh, that I've heard it from some very good people, from one from, uh, rabbi, the late Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, who said that he was convinced that 95% of leadership is just showing up. It's time for the American Jewish community, the communities, to show up. We have differences. Yeah, any synagogue and temple you go to, we know all the Jewish jokes. But we also know one thing, to our enemies, they don't care what our affiliation is. We're fair game, and we need to push back smart and hard. Right. Rebecca Cooper, do you have time to stay with us like for another 15 or 20 minutes? Uh, how about if we do, uh, for me, to the top of that, it's about 12 minutes or so. That's about okay. it. We'll keep going then. Okay. Um, one of the things that I read about Trayon White was that they took him to the Holocaust Museum, and he left about uh, halfway through. Here's my question. Um, the way I, I don't know him that well, but to me, he looks and speaks like a Farrakhan acolyte. Um, the way I see it is the Holocaust Museum has a place for people like him once they understand what their sins have been. But to just, from what I read was the Jewish Federation wanted to rehabilitate him. So they invited him for a Seder night and then had breakfast with bagels and locks and then took him to the museum. A guy like him is thinking, why do I want to see this museum when my people have suffered so much? So at what point in education does the Holocaust Museum have a place, and when is it too early? Well, uh, I think, uh, you know, we don't want to get into the trap of uh, we already have the following reality in America. Every single year, FBI stats, the number one targets of race, uh, hate crimes in the U.S., blacks. The number one target of religious-based hate, hate crimes, Jews. So whether we like it or not, we're neck and neck at the top, even though we're only 2% of the population. Farrakhan and, uh, and his ilk have been uh, basically uh, selling, marketing 
a very strong drug. It's called victimization. And it's, it's not so simple. We want people to learn about our terrible past uh, on the one hand, and we don't want to be, we're not interested in being the 21st century's victims. So, but Farrakhan has sort of uh, brought that and embedded uh, throughout the decades that, and that's why you say, well, you know, oh, 6 million died, there's 50 million blacks, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. I, I'd like to respond to your question in the following way. We have a traveling exhibition called Courage to Remember on the Holocaust. Been in circulation since 1988, translated into many languages. We have a, two, uh, active in Japan, 3 million people have, uh, ha- have seen it. One of the most moving moments for me was when we opened the exhibition about 50 feet from the grave of Martin Luther King Jr. in Atlanta. And uh, uh, when we, we came to do the finishing touches before the formal program, a very dapper African-American gentleman, middle-aged, came up to me. It's about a half hour early. And he identified himself as a state representative, a lawyer. And he said, Rabbi, I want to tell you my personal story. And then I think you'll understand why I came, came out tonight. Said I was born in Harlem. I was the middle child of seven kids. Unfortunately, there was a different father for each of us. A, a horrific situation at home. He bootstrapped himself. He went to Columbia University. He got a law degree. He moved to Georgia. A huge, amazing success story. An American success story. She said, you know, Rabbi, let me, let me explain something to you. So I've spent decades now trying to find my roots. And I've been able to trace back my roots to a plantation in Virginia in 1857. And before that, nothing. So when I I come and I I know about the Holocaust, and I, I just want you to understand something, that for me, I will never know what my true roots are. I don't know where I actually came from. I don't know what my forefathers uh, believed in. I'll never have that. My, my roots go back to a, to a slave plantation in, in the 1850s. And he says, I look at the Jewish community and I marvel at the Jewish community. And here, uh, I'll take over. We don't even understand how much we owe the Holocaust survivors. And we understand the one of the goals that Eichmann had, and I think that he stated when he thought he wasn't going to uh, ever be captured, was that even though he didn't succeed in killing every single Jew, he believed that the Nazis succeeded with the final solution because so many of our teachers and communities and institutions were wiped off the face of the earth that this was basically the end of Jewish history. What Eichmann and the others obviously couldn't account for is that three years after Auschwitz, you have the state of Israel, but that also the survivors, instead of embracing terrorism, which they had every moral right to do so, the world didn't give a damn about them or their families. 
they embraced life. The people who were left, who had the knowledge, became our teachers. They created a bridge so that we can still point our kids all the way back to Moses. But when we look at the lens of where we're at, and we look at our African-American neighbors and others, you know, we have to dig a little bit deeper and not play it by the narrative or rules of the Farrakhan's or the Electronica guy. That's exactly what they want. I'm, you know, originally born and bred in Brooklyn. I hate playing the narrative by the rules and the rules of the game by our enemies. We don't have to do that if we're smart enough. And I've traveled the world, uh, all over the world. There are people of goodwill and faith in every single culture. You know, we have to figure out who they are, find them. And then, and in the social media dominated world, it's not that difficult anymore and make common cause with them. Part of that is to really understand as the education I got that evening in Atlanta, to understand what it is that Farrakhan understands about the black experience and how he minds it for his own reasons and his own goals. So instead of staying focused on the Farrakhan, we should stay focused on creating relationships, meaningful ones, with, uh, with our uh, African-American and Latino and all the other neighbors. And the way to do that, by the way, we don't call it interfaith, Louise and Dolcetta. We call it multi-faith. You know, I, it's not, I'm an Orthodox rabbi. I was ordained at Yeshiva University. It's not for me to say how people should reach out to God if they're not Jews. If you're a decent human being, if you care for others, you believe in God. Maimonides already says, you're going to heaven. Don't worry, whatever, whatever uh, faith you are. But we do have an obligation to stand up for our, ourselves. And I was the Jewish spokesman at Durban 20 years ago in South Africa, which was the worst uh, hate fest against the Jewish people that everything we're talking about, apartheid, uh, you know, delegitimizing de, uh, de Israel, double, that's where it was birthed. It was birthed within the context of the people who tell us they're in charge of building a civil society. So it's all hands on deck. We have multiple tasks. And I think the most important statement I'd like to make to you listeners is you don't need permission from any Jewish organization to do your share. You have the right, by all means, of saying to any Jewish organization, your own temple or synagogue, your, your lodge, you know, your, your Hillel, your Chabad. Hey, we have a problem here. Uh, we need to fix it. We need to, you know, figure out a way how to deal with it and not sit back and say, oh, yeah, those other guys are going to take care of it. They, that, that world's gone. Right. One last question. I know you have to leave. Um, Rabbi Cooper, speaking about roots, um, I'm very curious about something. My mother's family in Romania was deported to Transnistria. As a child of Holocaust survivors, I've been spending my life reading anything I can get my hands on because I grew up hearing about the atrocities. It was in my blood to learn as much as I could. And it used to bother me that not enough is publicized about Transnistria. And it was almost like a silent history. However, as of late, there is more being made of knowledge. So is the Simon Wiesenthal 
center involved in teaching about trustee street at all in the context of the overall story yes but let me let me put it uh, this way we're not primarily an academic institution we're a teaching institution and i would say more for the masses uh, we opened the Museum of Tolerance 27 years ago, and I was involved uh, much more back then in the hot debates, harsh debates internally. Uh, Martin, uh, Sir Martin Gilbert, the late great historian, was, uh, had helped us, and we had the following uh, reality, which we still follow today. You, you have at most, and we actually keep building the museum for maybe two to three hours. But let's say the Holocaust presentation is about an hour and 15 minutes. So I know one thing, I've never met a Hungarian Jew who's happy at the end. And I've never met a Polish Jew. I remember one, my, Henry Appel, my late great friend, he was two and a half years in Auschwitz. And he would say, the people from Hungary, what do they know about suffering? So uh, I would say the following, uh, no, we don't have enough. We don't uh, talk enough about what the Nazis were planning to do, you know, in, in Germany, uh, in, in, uh, in, in Morocco and, and to Jews in Arab countries, et cetera, et cetera. We're always learning more because of the Cold War. Right. The uh, amount of information of what happened behind the Iron Curtain is still only now emerging. It'll take another generation. That is primarily Yad Vashem's. Uh, uh, mandate, uh, and there are many other important academic institutions. That's that's not the path uh, that we sought. But as someone who's a child of survivors, your Jewish instinct is kicking in and say, "One second, I want to make sure people understand, you know, what happened to my family." Yeah, it's a it's a, a an important road. It could be an interview you do with, uh, with a survivor or did. It may be going back to the roots and doing a mini documentary. There are different ways to, to get attention, but the scope of what actually happened the, is really almost beyond comprehension. And it's certainly beyond the scope of any music. If, you, if they gave us 300,000 square feet or, or a, a square block, that's not, that's not, I think, the way I see it right now, talking, let's say, educationally, let's, let's uh, end on a positive note. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I think it happened to me. It's a beautiful Jewish tradition. Uh, as you know, Jewish parents uh, want their kids to be educated. And so historically, when the toddler is sort of old enough to sit on his dad's lap and communicate and show curiosity... So they would take out the Aleph Bet primer, right? That just tablet that had Aleph Bet, A, B, C, D in Hebrew. And that what they would do is the father would take the finger of this little boy and move it towards the tablet, towards the A. On the A, on the Aleph, was honey. And then take the finger from the Aleph and put it into the child's mouth. The goal to make the first educational experience a sweet one. Let's just understand that in the 21st century, all of this technology, all of it, is only the honey on the olive. It's not the goal. It's the 
But having said that, that means that you have available now in 2021 the potential to educate a lot of people of what happened, uh, what your roots are, and, and the, the amazing uh, power of having the connectedness to your uh, roots that Hitler wanted to utterly uproot and totally destroy, okay, and, and failed. So your instinct is correct, and you can act on that. And, uh, you know, the idea of, yeah, probably the only place that that part, Romania, would be listed in our museum is in the presentation on the Vance conference. January 20th, 2022 will be 80 years to a time where in Lake Vance, 14 ministers of state of Nazi Germany, eight of them with PhDs, sat down to vote on creating what's called the final solution. Every one of those academics, one of whom was, was uh, educated in a major university in the United States, they all voted with Heydrich and Eichmann. This wasn't just a matter of uh, hoodlums from, uh, from the street. So it's the 80th anniversary. We're going to be doing some important things to remind the world uh, about the lessons that need to be taken. But here's one. Never confuse uh, education and degrees with ethics. Rabbi Cooper, education and knowledge about the truth is the key against anti-Semitism. Holocaust education must go on through the generations till the end of time, because never again, never again. Rabbi Cooper, thank you for joining us today on the Definitive Wrap to educate us. And thank you to Vinnews.com for hosting our show. And thank you to our audience for tuning in. Thanks for listening to The Definitive Wrap with your host, Bela Sebro and Alan Skorsky. Be sure to tell your family and friends they also can listen to The Definitive Wrap on Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, and your favorite streaming service. See you next time on The Definitive Wrap.